0: week in cycling a history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener six stages done 15 to go 198 riders started this race last saturday at mont-saint-michel and 198 riders are still part of the tour de france even before stage 6 this year's tour had already broken the record for the most kilometers covered in a tour with no riders abandoning The most kudos for this collective achievement of staying power from this year's peloton must go to both Michael Morkoff of Team Katusha and Sam Bennett of Bora-Argon, both of whom came down in a crash on the first stage and have been flirting with the broom wagon on a daily basis since. For Bennett, the will to continue must surely be heightened by what happened to him during last year's tour. Coming into the race under-trained, under-raced and under the weather, Bennett slogged around France until stage 17, when his various ailments finally got the better of him and he abandoned his first ever tour. This time around, he must surely have wanted to at least make it to Paris, along with harbouring hopes of challenging for stage wins on the flat days. His first day wounds means he has been nowhere near Cavendish, Kittle and Sagan while they swap stage wins up the front, but his chances of finishing the race are surely improving every day as his wounds heal and his resolve strengthens. It's a strange quest to take on, this sadistic torture that one endures just to say they finished a bike race. But to finish the tour is a badge of honour which propels a rider into a different stratosphere of respect amongst his peers and among fans. Paul Kimmage illustrates this point in his seminal autobiography A Rough Ride, when he writes about his achievement of finishing the 1986 Tour de France. It was a great stage, a fun stage, The triumphant ride into Paris. During the long 252 kilometer ride to the capital, a bottle of champagne was passed around the bunch. There was the singing of the tour song, Oh Champs Elysees, and spirits were high. I got more and more nervous as we approached Paris, and the speed went up. I saw one of the lads taking his stuff. It was so terribly simple. The metal tube was opened, the plastic cap protecting the needle was taken off and held between the teeth. The right sleeve of the jersey was rolled back and the needle was slipped into the skin of the shoulder and with the squeeze of the sawn-off piston, the amphetamines were pushed in. The plastic cap was replaced on the needle and the syringe was put back in the tube and into the pocket. Beautifully done and so terribly simple. One of the lads offered me a tablet, but I refused and lied that I was feeling fine. We could see the Eiffel Tower. What a wonderful sight! We raced along the bank of the Seine, past the huge mass of metal, then swung left into Place de la Concorde and onto the Champs-Élysées. The roar from the crowd sent goose pimples through my legs, and though we raced up and down at over 60 kilometres an hour, I felt no pain. I was so overjoyed at having made it, so overcome with the magnificence of it all, that I didn't feel the pedals. The finish line was crossed, and we ground to a halt. Bernard Valet stopped beside me and embraced me. He had tears in his eyes. Now you know what it is to ride the Tour de France. My father was standing just a little further on. He threw his arms around me. I was so pleased he was here to share my triumph. It was the happiest day of my life. 210 riders had started. 132 had finished. I was 131st. I had survived. I was a giant of the road. The Tour was a great education. I learned so much about myself and about the real world of professional cycling. Every race before the Tour had been almost child's play when compared to Le Grand Boucle. The Tour was the ultimate, the 100% race. Finishing it had instilled in me a certain sense of pride. It took a hard man to finish, and I now had my hard man's licence. I had expected it would be hard, but it was so much harder. I felt like abandoning a hundred times in the last week, but I didn't give in. I couldn't, for I felt my survival as a professional bike rider depended on getting to Paris. M. O. were a small team, but at the end of the season, the weak men would be sacked and new blood brought in. Monsieur Brian was not pumping money into cycling to play in the second division. Big names would be signed and small names sacked to make room for them. I had a contract for two years, so I was assured of my place for 1987, but already I was thinking ahead to 1988. I may not have been the classiest bike rider in the world, but I had other qualities – courage, guts and honesty – In a year's time, Thévenet would remember not that I had finished the tour on my hands and knees, but that I'd finished. I had made some bad mistakes. I had been desperately naive in thinking I could ride a Tour de France on two multivitamin tablets each morning. The Tour de France was no ordinary race. It made superhuman demands on the human body. Riding 6 hours a day for 23 days was not possible without vitamin supplements, mineral supplements, chemicals to clean out a tired liver, medication to take the hardness out of rock-hard leg muscles. Taken in tablet form, the medication passed through the stomach and liver. This was extra work for already overworked organs, and the result was that much of the benefit of the product was lost. Injections avoided this, and were therefore much more efficient. A syringe did not always mean doping. In a perfect world, it would be possible to ride the tour without taking a single medication, so long as everyone else did the same. But this was not a perfect world. We were not doping. We were taking care of ourselves, replacing what was being sweated daily out of our bodies. The substances taken were not on the prescribed list. So how could we be doping? And yet one thing was becoming clear to me. As soon as you started playing, as soon as you accepted the taking of medicaments, the line between what was legal and what was illegal, became very fine. The line between taking care of yourself and doping became very, very thin. Most fellows cross it without ever realising they have. They just follow the advice of a teammate or soigneur. So-and-so swears by this. Anytime he wants to do a ride, he takes it. And even though the rider himself may not want to take the product, doubting perhaps its legality, the thought of being disadvantaged changes his mind. It's a bit like an arms race. Laurent's got an intercontinental missile in his arse today. I'd better get one or I'll be blitzed. And before they know it, they are in the middle of a very dangerous game. By accepting an injection on the night of the Nantes time trial, I had indeed entered the dope stadium. I was, however, firm in my commitment to stay off the playing field, as far as illegal substances were concerned. Could this last? I hoped so. Even while flirting with what was legal and what was not, Kimmage's pride in finishing the world's toughest race is palpable and remains so to this day, in spite of everything. For some, the dream of finishing the Tour de France ends almost as quickly as it starts. Perhaps the shortest effort at completing a Tour de France was achieved by Chris Boardman, who crashed out during the prologue time trial in the 1995 edition, in the rain, in Saint-Brieuc. He writes about the incident in his recent autobiography, Triumphs and Turbulence. I warmed up in a waterproof jacket and kept it on until the last possible moment on the start ramp. As Serge Boucherie reached to take it off me, he offered some last-minute advice about the course and the conditions, desperate to convey the belief that it was still doable. I didn't need it. By this point, the yellow mist had descended and all sense had gone. I charged down the ramp and onto the rain-soaked streets. I settled into position and drove into the first gentle curves, the spray off the front wheel hitting my legs. A kilometre later, I swung hard left onto the Rue de l'Europe, wet tyres skipping sideways over the shiny cobbles that decorated many of the town's road junctions. The next obstacle was a 280-degree loop onto the Pont de Toupin. I took it in the same reckless style. Even mid-race, a small part of my mind was looking backwards, wondering how I'd got around those corners. Alarm bells were ringing, but I wasn't listening. Two and a half minutes in, a third of the way through. Another right, and I was onto the Boulevard de la Mer, the start of the descent, the cobbled patches and tight bends behind me. There was just this fast run down to the river and a single serious corner between me and Yellow. Behind, I could hear Roger's tinny excitement through the speaker, mounted to the front of his car. Just two seconds from Jackie Gironde. is finished now. You can go flat out. Those were his exact words, and they were the last I heard before it happened. Sprinting onto the descent and up to full speed, I took the first easy right, drifting almost into the left side ditch before I was through. The rain was still falling, the streetlights starbursts on the water streaking my visor. I was pedalling in surges now, going so fast that I'd run out of gears. I got over to the right just in time for the next left-hand curve, and again I had to use all the road. This time, though, the succeeding bend was in the same direction. Another, slightly tighter left, for which I was now totally out of position. Suddenly, I was aware of just how fast I was travelling, about 80 kilometres per hour. My subconscious mind projected possible courses of action, examined the trajectory changes and braking patterns that might help me rectify my error, and came up blank. All I could do was lean in as gently as possible and hope, but I already knew it. It wasn't going to work. Despite being in one of the most northerly parts of France, Saint-Brieuc, still gets very hot weather, hot enough sometimes to melt the tar on the roads. When this happens, particularly on corners, the lateral pressure applied by countless car tyres massages the malleable surface into tiny furrows, pushing the embedded gravel away from the surface and deep into the tar. Once they cool and set, these barely noticeable troughs are perfect for holding water, producing a road surface as smooth as glass. This is what had happened on the Boulevard de la Mer. Below the sheen of water, the meagre few millimetres of my tyre rubber, that had until then been valiantly clinging to the tarmac, encountered one of these sun-smoothed patches, and finally gave up the battle for traction. And if we find ourselves feeling sorry for Chris Boardman, Spare a thought for a rider who pretty much experienced the opposite. In 2013, Louis Vestre, due to illness, was forced to abandon the Tour de France on the final stage just 38 kilometres before reaching the finish line.